0: This is the second of our podcasts on post-surgical complications. Today we're looking at more surgical complications including oliguria and acute kidney injury as well as bowel problems that can occur after surgery.
1: All right, so as for all of our recordings, just a disclaimer, Uh, these slides are student-derived content. It's not representative of the teaching of medical school or medical practitioners' advice, so take what we talk about with a grain of salt. That being said, we've gone to some lengths to sort of reference our content and we hope it's all accurate. Originally, this was recorded as oliguria and constipation. However, the final recording ended up being around 36, 37 minutes. So we've decided to split it into two. So if there's anything within that doesn't make sense, it's because it is now a
0: two-part recording. So if you remember back to... One of the PBLs from first year, there was a gentleman called Bob DeCosta who I think he ran a half marathon and he'd taken a bunch of NSAIDs and he was also on ACE inhibitors and thiazides. And do you remember what condition he got, Tom?
1: Oh, that's stretching my memory, Rick, but I think he went on to develop acute kidney injury.
0: Yeah, so I think he got a combination of things. He got pre-renal failure and that Um, was complicated by a thing called acute tubular necrosis because of that. I can't remember, he might have required dialysis, but he got very sick anyway. And I guess the point from that one is just to remember that there's a lot of medications that are commonly prescribed that have um, important implications for renal health.
1: So what we plan to talk about today is essentially oliguria and constipation. We'll go through the definition of both of these, look at some potential causes, try and work out a common sense approach and then look into the management for each and then finally we'll sort of review how this applies to year three and how you might be tested on it, and then finish with a review question.
0: All right, Tom, so how do you typically define oliguria? So to
1: start off with, the general figure that you'll see, a normal urine output is generally one mil per kilogram per hour, and then some say that maybe half of this, so 0.5 mils per kilograms per hours, is the lower limit. It's well argued in a Podcast from on the wards on Algeria. you can see our slide notes for the link others accept a lower output of 15 to 30 mils per hour so rick what we're really considering here is the differences between obligatory and facultative urine output have you heard of these terms i haven't heard of it described in that way so obligatory urine is essentially the minimum urine a person has to make under maximal concentrating abilities to remove toxins so this is creatinine, potassium, hydrogen ions and it's in the realm of 400 mils over 24 hours and it's affected by the diet. So if you were, for instance, to have a high protein diet you'll produce more urea and you'll need more urine over 24 hours to excrete it and still remain in homeostasis. Okay. So faculty of urine, therefore, is any urine output above this. So really why we care is, is that whilst we talk about a normal urine output being one mil per kilogram per hour and the lower maybe half of that really any amount that keeps the electrolytes balanced and your acids balanced and your urea low is adequate even if it is not that magical figure so rick why do we care about oliguria
0: well it can be um a hallmark of serious underlying disease and it can also be dangerous in of itself. So one of the first things you want to consider in someone who's got oliguria is are they hyperkalemic and at risk of arrhythmias and death. It's also important just to consider urine output as a marker of kidney function and overall systemic perfusion. It's got a lot of important implications for drug clearance. Some drugs are renally cleared for instance in an oliguric patient might accumulate and become toxic. As we mentioned before, hyperkalemia And of course, if someone's in acute urinary retention from something like a blocked catheter, it can be really painful for the patient.
1: Right. So generally, what we're thinking about is maybe electrolytes are starting to get skewered. Maybe this is underperfused kidneys, which is also meaning the other tissues are underperfused. And we are worried about other things being disturbed, like uh, the amount of drugs in our body. So Rick, maybe you want to go through a, a model that we can use to approach this.
0: Okay, so obviously the the kidney's complex and sophisticated and we won't describe it in that sort of detail, but there's this popular sort of model. And if you remember, there's the anatomy of it. So there's the afferent and efferent arterioles, between which is the glomerulus, and then um, the proximal convoluted tubule, the descending loop, the loop of Henley, the ascending loop, and then uh, the collecting duct both afferent and efferent arterioles can be controlled by the body to regulate the amount of blood that's being filtered at the glomerulus.
1: Right, and many drugs we know such as NSAIDs can interfere with that. That's what happened to Bob DeCoster, right?
0: Yeah, that's right, Sam. So just consider that ACE inhibitors actually can reduce the tone of the efferent arteriole and potentially reduce the GFR of some patients. So the reason we're
1: going back over the physiology is not because we're all histology nerds or we really want to emphasize this as a key point, but just to remind you that it is complicated and that just because someone has low urine output doesn't necessarily mean that they're hypovolemic and the kidneys aren't a bucket. If the urine output is low, doesn't mean you just need to fill them up with a bit more fluid, uh, remember all the physiology, and that you really need to treat each patient as appropriate.
0: Yeah, and if you understand the physiology and where drugs and that sort of thing are acting, it makes everything simple to understand.
1: So really, the things we need to consider are the afferent and efferent arterial tone, the hormones and drugs influencing reabsorption, the function of the glomerulus and the nephron, and also the patency of the urinary tract. So these are things like catheters... And sometimes the prostate will influence
0: what's happening or even stones. Okay, so what are some potential pitfalls in, in treating people with oliguria and acute kidney injury?
1: So we sort of alluded to this before. Giving fluids to everyone, I think, is uh, the half full bucket approach. Uh, if we were to remember back to congestive heart failure, you can actually get decrease systemic perfusion when you're actually quite fluid overloaded so you can get cardiac renal syndrome where the kidneys become under perfused, your urine output drops and you actually got way too much volume in the blood vessels which is dilating the heart so in that case it would actually would want to diurese them to improve the kidney perfusion rather than to give them fluids the other thing would be giving diuretics to someone just to make the urine output a little higher to make ourselves happy, because that actually doesn't help in terms of reducing the electrolytes. As long as there's enough filtration going through, your body will do the work without you having to give diuretics to, to bolster the urine output. Sure. So keeping that in mind, Rick, let's talk about working a general approach to seeing a patient.
0: Okay, so like all things, just keep in mind your A's, Bs and C's. Simple things first. So Obviously, if there's anything that's an emergency, so if this patient's an extremis, we need to call a Met and we need to address A's, B's, and C's. But assuming you have a bit of time, I'm going to look and see is this patient well? Are they unwell? Do they look like they're in pain? Keep in mind, a blocked catheter, like we alluded to before, can be extremely painful. Hemodynamic assessment so is this patient tachycardic, hypotensive? Are they fluid overloaded? Or conversely, is their JVP low? Are their mucosa dry? Do they have poor skin turga? You can check postural blood pressures as well to make sure they have adequate volume. Um, Tom, just refresh my memory. What's a significant postural drop?
1: That's a good question, Rick, and something that could be tested. I believe it's over 20 systolic and 10 diastolic.
0: Sounds good. Okay, so I'm sure everyone's heard this approach before, but you can consider acute kidney injury and oliguria in the context of pre-renal, intra-renal, and post-renal.
1: So the pre-renal causes could be things like sepsis, hypovolemia, anaphylaxis, heart failure. And we really want to find out why the patient might be pre-renal rather than just giving them fluids empirically.
0: Yes, yeah, so keep in mind that we might have given them inadequate um, resuscitation. They might have losses that we're not accounting for, things like losses from drains, from yeah, insensible losses basically. So Tom, what are the uh, intra-renal causes of kidney injury and oliguria so we talk
1: about things like acute tubular necrosis this can occur after hypoperfusion states It can occur from glomerular nephritis this could be an infection or one of the iga type mediated glomerular nephritis then you've got things like acute interstitial nephritis which can be a hypersensitivity type reaction this can be to drugs such as some antibiotics or it can be also due to contrast media
0: so just keep in mind with the intrarenal causes, acute tubular necrosis is by far the most common, and your clinical suspicion is just going to be probably got a likely pre-renal cause, and then you resuscitate the patient, and then you find that their renal function still hasn't improved, at which point you'd have a suspicion that they might have developed an acute tubular necrosis. Is there any way that you can differentiate between acute tubular necrosis and um, a prerenal cause, Tom?
1: So you can look at the urea-creatinine ratio or the fractional excreted
0: sodium. Yeah, and I wouldn't dwell too much on the fractional excretion of sodium. Just keep in mind that it is a useful thing.
1: And then the last cause, of course, being post-renal.
0: Yeah, so this is, in a more chronic picture, it could be something like benign prostatic hypertrophy, a blocked urinary catheter acutely, stones, malignancies, that sort of thing as well.
1: And most of the time, if someone's got low urine output, you'd want to put a catheter in them just so you can monitor more precisely how they're filtering. And we'd want to see what's coming out of that catheter. So is there clots being passed or is there bloodstained urine? Is there pass or is there stones? All right. So Rick, we should just talk briefly about the urea-creatinine ratio or the f- fractional excreted sodium.
0: Yeah, sure. So you can conceptually think of it in so in a pre-renal cause of oliguria. The patient's kidneys are still working. It's just they don't have enough fluid, right? So they're concentrating. The kidneys are holding on to as much sodium as they can with the purpose of holding onto as much water as they can. Whereas in a, in a patient who's got acute tubular necrosis, the kidneys are no longer able to effectively concentrate.
1: And a similar concept occurs with the urea and creatinine. When we're dehydrated, we hold on to the urea as a way of concentrating our urine. It's how we generate the osmotic gradient. Whereas in chronic renal failure both the urea and the creatinine will start to creep up. So it's really the comparison of how they rise in Comparison to each other, so I don't think you necessarily need to memorize these numbers, but they are handy, so you can do over a hundred to one of urea to creatinine is a pre-renal cause, and then under forty to one is intrinsic renal damage, and then anything in between can be normal or post-renal. Okay,
0: so Tom, how much do you think we should know about the glomerular nephritides? for the purpose of third year
1: well it's an interesting question it will most likely come up in short answer questions or multiple choice rather than an OSCE station for instance what do you think
0: yeah, that sounds about right. I guess bear in mind that if there's a suspicion of a glomerulonephritis in a patient, you're going to be able to tell a lot by the demographics and that sort of thing. And keep in mind that this is a complex area. It's the domain, really, of renal physicians. If there's a prior history of an upper respiratory tract infection, you'd think something like post-streptococcal glomerulonephritis. If it seems to be recurrent, it might be IgA nephritis. In young kids, they frequently get minimal change. And then in patients with uh, things like hepatitis C, they get prior I think, it's called, and then there's other things like vaginas, um, good pastures, and ore ports, all which cause different effects on the kidney.
1: So I think we're neglecting the most obvious, the pyelonephritis, in that.
0: Yeah, that's a good point, Tom. So obviously, the, the cystitis that's ascended up into the kidneys.
1: Right, so let's move on to the management of oliguria. Obviously, you want to treat the patient depending on their fluid status. If you were to determine they were hypovolemic, then you can start off with a fluid bolus, and you want to choose normal saline as your initial resuscitation fluid, and you'd want to give 500 mils to a litre and then reassess.
0: Okay, Tom, why would you choose normal saline over any other fluid?
1: Well, this is a bit of a long-winded explanation, but to cut it short we want to give a fluid that stays in the blood so we're resuscitating the blood volume so if you were to remember what electrolytes are in which compartments you'll remember that sodium is high in the extracellular fluid.
0: These patients are possibly at risk of hyperkalemia, and Hartman's has a modest amount of potassium in it, but there is still a possibility that you might worsen a hyperkalemia with Hartman's. And as far as I'm aware, there's not all that much value in colloids over crystalloids.
1: Yeah, so as a general approach, normal saline is almost never wrong as your initial resuscitation fluid. So after giving your 500 mL to a litre, We really want to reassess, so we're looking at the mucous membranes, the JVP, the skin turga, the heart rate, all those things that you look beforehand. And you want to see what's happened to the JVP. So if they were actually under perfused, you might actually not see the JVP rise as giving them fluids. If you were to see the JVP rise after giving them fluid, that would actually mean that they were probably euvolemic and now you've made them hypervolemic. And then I guess we need to check to see what the catheter is draining as we talked about before most catheters have a port do you know what that's for rick i think you can draw some off no i don't tom so remember we're talking about the context of a post-surgical so if they've had the terp procedure which is the transurethral prostatectomy it's a bit of a mouthful terp is better isn't it so if they've had that there's going to be a lot of bleeding within the urinary tract and you could have clots and you may need to flush it so the port on the catheter will just allow you to flush some saline in to unclog the clots and allow the catheter keep draining
0: what blood tests would you consider it well i'd like to look at blood biochemistry so just have a look at the electrolytes i'd like to look at creatinine urea first things first i want to make sure they're not hypokalemic that's going to kill them i want to know what their phosphate is you know all those sorts of things
1: yeah and then i guess it depends on the cause so if this is an unwell patient and that they have a fever and they're tachycardic you might want to take some blood cultures they might be septic and that's why they're pre-renal what about imaging rick
0: well An ultrasound's pretty non-invasive and pretty simple and pretty quick, and it'll tell us if there's obstructive pathology going on.
1: Yeah, and we don't even need the complicated ultrasound machines. We can even just use the bladder scan machines for this, can't we?
0: Yeah, I guess if we want to look in more detail, then there might be a role for CT. But one thing to consider is if if we're going to CT a patient in this context, they're potentially at risk of something called contrast-induced nephropathy.
1: And then last but not least, don't forget that we would like to dipstick the urine to see if there's any signs of infection and then we might also want to check the urine analysis to check to see the albumin, the electrolytes such as sodium, see if there's any protein in it, any sort of hints of what might be filtering through. So on the post-surgical patient what would you do for maintenance fluids?
0: Okay Tom so maintenance fluids uh, in post-surgical patients is two to three litres per day typically and that depends on the patient's weight, their oral intake and also what they're losing through things like surgical drains and ileostomies or colostomies.
1: And just to refresh, we want to give them normal saline as the general fluid. Perhaps if they're fasting and got zero oral intake, we want to add some dextrose in with that. And then if we're going to give more than two to three litres, then maybe we'll move on to the Hartmann's. Yeah,
0: and keep in mind if the patient's losing fluid with potassium in it and trending towards hypokalemia, you may need to give normal saline with 30 millimoles potassium, which is also made up.
1: So I think the point that I'd like to re-emphasize before we move on to constipation is that if you're going to give fluid, you really should reassess the patient to see what's changed after you've given it rather than just giving it and forgetting about it.
0: Yeah, because the last thing you want is an iatrogenic pulmonary edema. You're not going to feel very good after that. And also I
1: I think it helps us us as clinicians develop our skills. We're doing fluid assessments all the time to see whether we think the patients are dehydrated or not. And by assessing and reassessing, we get to be a little bit better as clinicians at recognizing these symptoms of being dehydrated
0: yeah keep in mind it's a very common intern job also just as a simple approach to it ask if the patient's thirsty if they are it's a good sign that they are um, volume depleted simple things all right so i think that just about wraps things up discussion of oliguria and acute kidney injury we will now wrap up part one of the podcast we will continue with constipation in part
1: two next week thanks for joining us until next week